Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Today on the podcast, we will channel the well-known radio broadcaster, Paul Harvey, and tell you the rest of the story. This story, featuring University of Kentucky anthropologist Monica Udvardi, began many years ago and features mystery, spirits, money, and international intrigue. Professor Udvardi, welcome to Think Humanities Podcast. Oh, thank you so much. This is a fascinating story that uh, really has been a large part of your life for a number of years. Yet I venture to say that not everybody knows the story, and in certain ways it continues. So I will just let you begin at the very beginning, and we will tell the rest of the story today on the podcast. Okay. Well, I'm a cultural anthropologist, and our training involves doing a year of field research in a community that one has selected. So I was working in Kenya from 1984 to 86, living out in the bush in the coastal Kenyan hinterland. And my PhD topic was about women, and I fell into research about their secret societies. In order to understand the women's secret society, I needed to understand the male secret societies. So one day I was interviewing a male about his participation in a secret society called Gohu. And part of the tradition of the Gohu secret society is to erect tall memorial statues, we call them. So somewhat like tombstones, but these statues actually mean more to these people than tombstones do to us because they actually believe the spirit of the ancestor is inculcated in this wooden statue. These are tall uh, statues, four four to nine feet tall, abstractly carved to depict that ancestor. And the man I interviewed very proudly showed me two statues that had been erected to honor his two deceased brothers who had passed away a couple of years earlier. I took photographs of him with those statues and he graciously interviewed and spoke to me for a couple of hours. I left and came back about a month later to give him paper copies of those photographs that I had taken as a courtesy. And when I put those photographs in his hands, he actually began to cry because during the month that I had been gone, those two statues had been stolen. And they were the only memory that he had of his brothers. He asked me to find the statues. And so anytime I was down along the Kenyan coast in places like Mombasa or some of the tourist towns, I would look in the so-called, and so-called antiquities shops that sometimes sold statues like these. 
I never found his two statues because each one is unique. Okay, so that was not the main focus of my research. But fast forward 15 years later, at the end of 1999, I was giving a paper at a national conference in Philadelphia that year, the African Studies Association. And I was on a panel talking about the secret society Gohu. I showed some slides, including one of this man standing with his two statues. On the panel was a colleague I knew vaguely. She had just become a faculty member at Illinois State University in Normal, Illinois, and been rather surprised to discover that they had a substantial collection of these statues, some 30 of them. So she gave a paper on the panel about uh, these statues and their meaning, and she showed slide after slide of these 30 statues. And as I sat there, having just given my paper, boom, I recognized one of my interviewees' statues that I had recorded in the field as stolen 15 years earlier. So in the middle of the panel presentation, I said, stop, wait, go back to that slide. And we actually compared our slides, and there was no question. It was the same statue. So the discussion in the room, all scholars of Africa, became how in the world does a statue go from what we now call the Kenyan hinterland to the American heartland? And that is what my colleague Linda Giles and I have been doing since then every summer uh, when we have time to do our research between our teaching and service duties. Well, Monica, let me tell you that um, I... I really appreciate uh, the the language, the African language and the, the different dialects. And I'm learning some of that. And I want you to uh, pronounce the name of uh, the, the statue for us. How, how do you pronounce that? So in the plural, they are called Vigangu. And in the singular, a Kigangu. So one Kigangu, many Vigangu. The reason I mention that, uh, not that it's so uh, pertinent to the story that you're telling, is that I just happened to be uh, sitting in on uh, Dr. George Wright's lecture and class this semester on slavery in the Americas. And we are starting uh, in uh, with the slave trade in uh, Africa and all of the, the Middle Passage and the ships that went back and forth and how they stopped and all of that. And uh, we have just uh, last, uh, this week, as a matter of fact, talked about some of the statuaries uh, that uh, he uh, has seen in his travels and research and writing that, that he has done. And of course, with that is the, the African uh, dialect and the pronunciation of of some of the areas and that sort of thing. So in reading about uh, your research, uh, the names of the um, uh, people that you were associated with, uh, the uh, names of the statues and that sort of thing are, are pretty fascinating, I think. So uh, you were you were doing, and, and maybe before Dr. Wright, you were doing some of that research uh, in in that country and in those areas. 
And I'm going to just go out on a limb and say that uh, most likely some of that or some of those ancestors were were part of the slave trade uh, back in uh, hundreds of years ago in the in the 1500s, the 16 and 1700s. Am I correct about that? Uh, They were those the slave trade that took place in East Africa. They were not taken to the Americas. But there's a long hundreds of years history of slave trade from the Arab world taking slaves to the Arab world. So that was part of what's called the caravan trade that really ramped up in the 1800s in East Africa, where there was a a demand for slaves in the Middle East and ivory, of course, throughout Europe. So you and uh, Dr. Giles uh, became uh, better friends, I'm sure. Um, What course uh, took place at at that point once you recognized, uh, which is amazing and almost unbelievable that it was the exact same statue and discovering that, um, that the, is it the University of Illinois? Uh, Illinois State University. Illinois State University had as many as 30 of these statues? Yes. Yes. So what happened next was that uh, Dr. Giles invited me to come up to Bloomington Normal, and we spent a whole weekend uh, looking at records of collections of African art through all the collections in American museums. We were looking for these statues, and I specifically was looking for my informant or my interviewee, whose name is Kalume Mwakiru. I was looking for his second stolen statue. So now we knew where one of them was, but we hadn't found the second one yet. And we spent the weekend poring over catalogs that we ordered in of collections of African art from throughout American museums that have collections of African art. And we, by this time, had located more than 400 statues in about 20 American museums. We wanted to know, how did those statues get into those museums? So we emailed the curators of all those museums and asked for their accession records concerning the statues. So whenever an artifact is purchased or donated to a museum, the curator of the museum has an obligation to write down everything that's known about the object at the time that it comes into the museum. And also they have an obligation to get an independent appraisal of the value of the object. So an appraisal by somebody who's not connected to the museum or the donor or the seller. So after viewing all of those records, we learned that more than 90% had been collected by one art dealer in the United States. So this is a person who regularly would go to the Kenyan coast. He has a gallery in Santa Monica, California, and he was quite well connected with people in Kenya. And about every second year, he would go and send out notice that he was there to purchase statues like these specifically. He specialized in Bigangu. So 
on the Kenyan coast, people are extremely poor and there's high unemployment. More than 30% of the population is unemployed. So people look for any sources of income and there were, are always people available and willing to do things like go and steal what are religious objects. So that is the pattern that eventually emerged. We have also regularly gone back to the Kenyan coast and traveled throughout the hinterland and interviewed people in their homesteads about whether they have erected vigangu and whether those have been stolen. And we learned that they were being stolen on a regular basis. People are very upset because as you can imagine, it's like having your grandfather's tombstone stolen, except it means more to these very poor people who believe that the spirit is actually in the statue. So tell me a little bit more about that. Uh, when I did our introduction about uh, spirits and about uh, some of the, uh, I don't know if you would say superstitions or uh, the lore, uh, the folklore about uh, what uh, the statues uh, meant to the to the native people. Um, so tell us a little bit more about that. And number two, is was it in a, a small region of uh, East Africa, or did you discover that uh, these statues are uh, native to a much larger geographic area? So these statues are erected by a group of nine culturally and historically related people who collectively are called the Miji Kenda. Literally, it means nine villages. I was specifically working with a group called the Giriyama, but these statues are erected by all of the northern Miji Kenda people. And that collectively is about, oh, I would say between one and two million people who live in a territory that's about 200 miles long by about 50 miles wide in the Kenyan, in the eastern part of Kenya. And it is part of their indigenous belief system. So as you may have heard, especially from the course you're taking, ancestral spirits are very important in Africa, in sub-Saharan Africa particularly. People truly believe that the ancestral spirits are guiding what the living descendants of long lines of ancestors are doing, that the ancestral spirits are simply in another place, but that they are very much there and alive. So they erect different kinds of statues to depict different kinds of ancestral spirits. For ordinary individuals, male or female, they erect smaller statues, maybe a foot tall, that are not carved. And they put them in the middle of their homestead in a cleared space where everybody kicks back in the afternoon. Um, and you will often find groups of males uh, drinking palm wine together in the afternoon, just like you would kick back with a, a can of beer after your workday. But before a group of men drink palm wine together, they will always go to that line of ancestral spirits and give a libation and speak a few words to their ancestors. It may be a recently deceased father or an ordinary grandfather. 
but they will say things. I've heard them say things like, hey, Bubba over there. Hey, father over there. Won't you make sure your grandson does well on his exam in school and things like that. So they truly believe that the spirits are guiding what the living are doing. Were the statues made uh, of a certain uh, type of wood that is indigenous to the area uh, that they are living in? Yes, exactly. It's made from an endemic hardwood, a wood that's resistant to termites, because that's a big problem. So um, there are carvers who specialize in Bigangu, who are members of that secret society, And they will go out into the forests and the bush and they can locate this specific kind of wood. They they will take a tree, but when they chop down a tree, there's a whole ritual and they speak to the tree and they thank it for giving the wood. And there's a several day long process where they are speaking to the wood as they are carving it. Uh, Once they've finished carving a statue, Um, They are commissioned by the family, the family of the ancestral spirit whose statue is being created to come and install the statue at the edge of homesteads. So people live in large extended family homesteads that are connected through males. It's a patrilineal society, a society that automatically gives authority and influence to men. And So they live in collections of small houses where people are related three generation families. And then you have the Vigangu that are at the edges of homesteads. And so unlike the statues for those ordinary ancestors that are in the middle of the homestead, these statues are believed to have such strong spiritual power that they're put at the edge of the homestead. So not every homestead has Vigangu. They're only erected for men who were members of that secret society. So I would say about every 10th homestead will have one or more Vigangu at the edge of their homestead. Monica, we're going to take just a slight pause here uh, for a word from Spalding University. But on the other side, I want you to tell me a little bit more about uh, the art dealer that you Uh, have uh, met over the years and also about museums and their collections. So we'll talk about that in just a moment. At Spalding University's School of Creative and Professional Writing, students develop mastery of the writing skills, highly prized in today's workplace, including arts and humanities organizations, government agencies, corporations, and small businesses. A professional writing student will explore opportunities writing for trade and consumer media, including reviews, profiles, interviews, and articles for sports, food, travel, health and science, and other publications. Learn more at spalding.edu slash school of writing or email school of writing at spalding.edu. So that's the question, Monica. Um, to tell us a little bit about uh, how you, and maybe the first time or two that you that you knew of this art collector, and and he was principally the one who was supplying the museums, and and even the museums uh, themselves. Uh, there are a number all over the country, and I, I would imagine all over the world. Yes, there are all over the world. 
we we have concentrated on the United States, although I have anecdotal information about Vigangu being in collections in museums around the world. Uh, so <clears throat> some of the research that we've done during the summer is that we have interviewed curators of American museums that have accepted donations of Vigangu. And they have told us that this is the process that happens on the U.S. end. So once those statues have been sent from the Kenyan coast by that art dealer to the U.S., they come to the gallery in Santa Monica, California. And what, what curators have told us is that that art dealer is very well connected to American museum curators who specialize in African art. And that over a period of about 30, 25 years, he would call curators or write to them and say that he had collections of Bigangu and would they like a donation to their museum of these statues. He's also very well connected to the Hollywood entertainment industry. So when we have examined these accession records, the records that the curators have written about each statue that's come into their museum, we found that they have been donated by a variety of Hollywood actors, producers, directors, including people like Gene Hackman, uh, Kurt Benedict, who was in some of the Star Wars movies, Linda Evans, who was a star in that soap called Dynasty in the 80s, and even Andy Warhol, not an actor, but an artist, had six Vigangu in his estate when he passed away. So uh, a variety of well-known figures have owned Vigangu. But from what we've been able to piece together is that the majority of these have perhaps never even seen the Vigangu that they own. Because what we have learned is that the art dealer would pass the Vigangu through his gallery to museums, arrange a deal where these members of the Hollywood entertainment industry would purchase a block of Vigangu, say, say maybe just a couple, but as many as 30 or 40 or 50, and never actually see them, just own them on paper. The art dealer himself would arrange for their donation to various museums in the United States. He also had his own so-called independent appraiser. Remember, I mentioned that they have to be evaluated for insurance purposes before they're accepted by a museum. Uh, we weren't able to interview the appraiser because he had passed away before we started this research. But this art dealer would arrange for everything concerning uh, the acquisition of these artifacts by museums. He would make sure that they got packed into boxes, shipped to the museums, and the curators have told us that all they had to do was sign a piece of paper accepting the donation. Now, the big question is, why would somebody do this? And what we have learned is that there was a tax break, uh, a way for wealthy people to reduce their tax burden. Now, 
we found that these statues are evaluated at between two and five thousand dollars a piece. So let's give it a conservative estimate of three thousand dollars per statue. If you donate ten statues to a museum, you can reduce your tax burden by thirty thousand dollars. And that seems to have been the reason for this whole process taking place from sometime in the late 70s, early 80s, until we, we shut him down in the early 2000s. The tax law changed also uh, somewhere around that time, around 2000. So you can still do it, but now you have to hold an artifact or an object. It can be a piece of art. It can be a painting. You have to hold it for two years before you donate it. But at that time, you didn't even have to have seen the object that you purchased and donated to a museum. Professor, uh, let me ask you, we've heard about the art dealer and the way he operated. Is there not a, a burden of responsibility placed on the museums in some way that they either suspected or... Just accepting these uh, as as gifts to the museum, it seems like to me. Um, well, I'm just I, I won't I won't go any further than that. There's some responsibility then falls to the museums or the universities. Yes. So uh, there is a code of ethics that American museums should follow. There's both an American code of ethics and an international code of ethics, but they are not laws. So uh, there is something called Museums Doing Due Diligence is the name of it. And so curators have a responsibility to try to determine whether an artifact was originally stolen or looted. This was not enforced very much until the work of the work that we're doing and that many other colleagues were doing starting at the end of the 90s and going into the 2000s. There's much more work like the ones that, that my colleague Linda Giles and our Kenyan colleague John Mitsanze, who has also been instrumental in this, and I have been doing There's a lot more work that's been done on the ethics of objects coming into museums since that time. And because of work such as this, Curators are having to do more of that scrutiny and due diligence. There's also actually been court cases, like the famous case of Marion True, who was the acquisitions curator of the Getty Museum in Los Angeles, the richest museum in the world, who was convicted in the International Court of Law in 2007 for knowingly purchasing stolen artifacts from Italy. So because of cases like that and the work that is being done by a lot of anthropologists and archaeologists around the world, museum curators are paying a lot more attention to doing that due diligence today. But in defense of the curators, I asked them that question and they told me that they were enthusiastic about uh, accepting collections of Vigango for two reasons. One is that if you go into any museum in the United States that has African art collections, like the Cincinnati Art Museum, for example, 90, 98% of what you see there comes from West Africa. 
because West Africa produced beautiful pieces of what the West considers to be art, fabulous pieces of gold and bronze and, and cloth and so on. East Africa, because of the societies that were there, different kinds of societies, doesn't have a lot of what the West considers to be art. So when these curators were presented with an opportunity to expand their African art collections to include East Africa, and most curators have an obligation to try to get an even distribution of art or artifacts, they welcomed that opportunity. The second reason that they accepted these collections is that starting in the 80s, we see a lot of African-American athletes earning more and more money in the United States. And they had a huge interest in seeing all kinds of African art in museum collections. So those are the two reasons that curators gave us for being enthusiastic about getting these collections. So, Professor, uh, a fascinating story. And um, as, as, as I said, Paul Harvey, uh, the rest of the story, what's the status of your research at this moment? Uh, it's, it's been a, I'm sure you stumbled into a lifelong practice of, uh, of working on this in um, almost every, every day, every month uh, throughout your, your life. Um, what, what happens now? Is your work discovering where these valuable statues are uh, continuing? So we have had two trajectories with our research. One is basic research that scientists engage in. Uh, questions like what are the meanings of these statues to the different groups as they are propelled around the world. But the second trajectory has been Let's get these statues back to Kenya, to the family in Kenya that they belong to. And let's, let's raise awareness, raise public awareness about the devastating impact of having either artifacts in the ground looted or parts of living cultures like these statues taken from families. And so we've been engaged in both those processes. In 2007, we succeeded in getting those two statues back to the family in the hinterland of Kenya. And it was quite an exciting time. There was a cabinet minister there. There were over 100 dignitaries in this very poor homestead out in the bush in Kenya. And they had to build a, I hate to call it a cage, so I'll call it a steel enclosure, for the two returned Nigangu because otherwise there would have been a risk of them being stolen again. And now you know the rest of the story. Professor Monica Udvardi of the University of Kentucky, an anthropologist, cultural anthropologist who's been doing this work, a fascinating story, and we appreciate your time. And who knows, there might be more that you can tell of this tale. Uh, please contact us and we'll, uh, we'll continue to to work with you in, um, in reporting what uh, is uh, a, a fascinating life and a fascinating story that, needs, uh, that more people need to hear. Well, if I can just say one thing, if anybody sees Vigangu in any museum collections, I would love for them to contact me at my email, 
my last name, Udvardy, U-D-V-A-R-D-Y at uky.edu and ask the public when you're traveling, purchase art from cooperatives, from local cooperatives. That's the best way to infuse money into the local economy. Thank you very much for this opportunity, Bill. And thank you, Professor. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.